I'd like to offer a warm welcome to everyone once again. It's good to see you all filing into the, the cloud Zendo. As we do, other people will join us, I'm sure. So uh, let's enjoy a few minutes of, of sitting, of upright, attentive presence. And we'll engage the um, verse of the robe, chant it three times um, at the bell at the end of the sitting.
Are you aware of the sensations associated with your breath? Maybe a slight rise and fall of your tummy. Movement in the sides of your ribs under your arms. Through your nose, a little breath across your upper lip. Maybe take just a gently larger breath, not a big, big breath, but just exaggerate just a little bit to wake up your attention to your breath and then rest and allow your breathing to continue on its own. Just this gentle attention to something so fundamental and something already happening. But waking to this presence and this activity that's immediate and embodied is a doorway into remembering what's always and already present. Our life, uh, the function of our life. Our nature, our true nature, our Buddha nature. And now with me, the, the verse of the robe. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. As we said those uh, words this morning, um, for me it's morning, <laughs> uh, today, I was, uh, something was, was called up, uh, how 
much we would wish that each person in whatever situation, whatever life circumstance, whatever age, race, color of their skin, um, function of their health right now would be wrapped in liberation. It would be free for that understanding the one true nature which harmonizes all being because we seem so far at the moment from harmony in so many ways. And this liberation is vast. At least that's our, our practice and our, our reminder as we chant. <clears throat> but it only is present through our actions. Otherwise, it's just a concept or some really great idea, but it's not manifest. As Suzuki Roshi once said, technically speaking, there are no enlightened people. There's only enlightened activity. There's only enlightened action. Uh, wakefulness is not something a person can have it's the ground of our being that rises up through our practice and awareness of wakefulness. We come to realize something and then act accordingly. And that action is what we're hoping for in the world. There's a particular piece of this, which I've, I've been thinking about quite a bit during uh, the, the current situations um, we're faced with. And it has to do with our ability to come forward. There's an old story some of you may have heard that the first generation Japanese teacher here in America, Katagiri Roshi once told about he and his teacher. Uh, and it reminds me of being in Japan in the Ofura, the baths where uh, we would go and uh, have the big uh, vessels of water that were heated by fire and to take our baths, the, the men at a certain time, the women at a certain time, alternating. And in this case, Katagiri was talking about being an attendant to his teacher. And when they would go to the bath, he would, uh, to take their bath, he would always ask his teacher, would you like me to scrub my back? Your back, sorry. And, and his teacher would always shrug him off with kind of a, Ugh, like he was being bothered. He wouldn't say anything, he, but he would, with his action and his body language and his, his grunt, he would reject it time after time, day after day. Until one day, Katagiri didn't ask. He just scrubbed his teacher's back. And his teacher's response was, ah, with a, an assent and a gratitude in his body language this time in his size. And Katagiri spoke about his, um, the learning, which was about coming forward. He didn't suggest that we shouldn't ask or be respectful or any of that. That was already in place. But what it's like to come forward and offer ourselves so generously, to not hold back. At the end of a, a beautiful um, poetic piece, which many of you are familiar with by Ezra Beda called What Is Our Life About? It ends with, Time is fleeting, don't hold back. Appreciate this precious life.
So sometimes through our actions, we, we come forward and, and feel an appreciation from another, but often we come forward in life and feel the appreciation of our own life. Time is fleeting. Don't hold back, appreciate this precious life. There's a classic uh, koan, an ancestor story about this imperative that we respond, do something. And I couldn't help but um, think of conversations I've heard recently. Of course, they're all online uh, or recorded, but they're, they're quite, um, quite strong and arresting and challenging. And one of them in which a white person asked a, a black person who they, they knew, who was a friend, um, this person said, I'm so afraid to come forward, I'm afraid I'll, I'll do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing. And, and I wanna reflect on that, but here's the old story about that. And we're not gonna go into this koan in great detail because it's a challenging one and a disturbing one to some people, but it's the case 14 of the Mumun Khan in which uh, Nanchuan, who's the teacher, comes into the Zendo and sees the monks uh, fighting over the, the temple cat in, in some way. And so he grabs the cat and he holds it up and says, if you, any of you can say a word of Zen or truth, you can say something that's real, uh, you'll save the cat. And he's holding a sword or a knife. Otherwise, I'm going to cut the cat in two. No one answered. And the story says that he cut the cat in two. Um, there's many interpretations that he didn't actually sacrifice the cat, but let's say for a minute that this is the challenge. Later, uh, Zhaozhou returned to the monastery, one of the other senior priests, and Nanchuan told him what had happened. And Zhaozhou took off his sandals, put them on his head, and walked out. Nanchuan said, you know, if you'd been here, you would have saved the cat. Now, this, this action, which seems bizarre, uh, there's a reference in ancient China, um, putting one's sandals on one's head was a piece that suggested you were grieving, that something had been lost and, and you were grieving. Um, so in some ways, I hear that there are the request to say something of truth in this case, Zhao came back and indicated his own, his grief and did something, offered himself. He didn't hold back, even if it was strange, even if it was odd. But the monks couldn't. And so something, something happened. And this is an example of holding back in a discourse that's required because we're so afraid of making a mistake. And then the interaction between the, the white person and the black person that I was um, watching, the black person said, please come forward and make a mistake, but do something, uh, engage me, talk to me, um, we'll work it out. But if you don't come forward, there's, we can't do anything. Trust is stepping in and making a mistake so that something can happen is what the koan is saying. 
so that we can appreciate this precious life, so we can feel a sense of ah, relief that we've met in some way. Don't divide reality, cut in two. I'm over here, you're over there. I don't know, the poor cat. Respond. Now, when I say things like this, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we should be impulsive and just do whatever. Uh, certainly not to act out of our conditioned reactivity in some way that frankly can be harmful or disrespectful, uh, really uh, painful. These things require discernment, wisdom, and to come forward in this way requires a kind of a sensitivity, a kindness and compassion. And that is why we practice to mature this willingness and to mature our skillfulness so that we can come forward like Nanshuan was asking the monks, just come forward, do something, meet me so that something doesn't die. But to do so with some attention and some care. A lot of you who have practiced in a, a classical um, Zen setting really know this one well. Uh, and I give you examples of what I mean. When you're asked to do roles in the Zendo, you might do the clapper that comes in the morning to help us uh, get ready for sitting. You might be the timekeeper who's ringing the bells in a very specific way at precise times. Uh, you might be a, a bajisha or the assistant for the person who's presiding and offering the incense and bowing. And gosh, when you take on these roles, those of you who have done it, what's the first thing that you say to yourself what arises? Oh my God, I'm gonna make a mistake. And because it's public, I'm gonna be humiliated. So this is very present in those kind of situations. When we're offered a koan, I, some of you may have done traditional koan practice. Life certainly presents its questions that are like, I, I don't know what to do. Um, but I've done classical koan study for a while with a wonderful teacher. And when presented with some of these odd, very perplexing stories outside of my own time and with images like the sandals, which I don't understand, I have no idea how to navigate it. No idea what's being asked of me. And it seems like in the contemporary world, in the studies we find ourselves, we, we meet this question, I, I, I don't, I can't tell what's being asked. I don't know how to interpret things. So I'm not sure how to move forward. Those of us who have set longer retreats, or some of you who have been head student or emerging teachers, or you've been asked to lead a class, what else comes up? How many times do you say to yourself, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to sit a seven day or a 10 day retreat. I don't have it, what it takes to sit in front of everyone and speak. I'm too frightened. And even in this situation with if inquiry, when it, when it uh, comes to speaking up or asking a question, what arises? Gosh, I'll look foolish or I'll sound stupid or there's all these people, I, I, I don't know. There's so many different ways, so many different everyday challenges in which we hold back. And that's why the forms 
and the invitations to meet the forms in Zen practice aren't so that you can be spiritual or be a good Zen student. It's nothing to do with that. It's so that you can confront all these ways in which you cling to some image or place of supposed, it's illusory safety, so you don't have to come forward. And engaging in a discussion about racism, the same thing arises. I don't know what to say. What, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I'm offensive? The truth is, you will be. But now you have a chance to learn something in a relationship. If that relationship has some shared willingness and some shared commitment to moving deeper and forward. Another side of the speaking up is, are you willing to speak up when someone does something that's unsafe? For example, if um, someone isn't wearing a mask or getting too close, is it okay to say something as respectfully and clearly and cleanly as you can? Because we think, oh, they might get mad. Well, they might. And then you have the challenge and actually the potential to turn that situation. It might not resolve. There might be someone that is um, resistant, belligerent, you have no relationship with, and they may have a very uh, stuck kind of attitude, but you never know. When I was writing my notes, I, I thought of, um, since my father is on my mind quite a bit right now, having just passed, I thought of a time when we were engaged in an activity that we loved doing together throughout our life that we also did with his father as we played golf. Uh, we weren't a, a family of means. We never belonged to a country club or anything. We just played municipal golf together. It was a good way to spend time and we enjoyed it. But one day, um, late in my father's life, we were with all the sort of uh, you know old guys and I was invited to, to play with them. And um, it was a lot of fun. They were great and they were gruff and they were funny. And, but one day, one of the men, we were standing on the tee box waiting and one of them talking and one of the men said, well, you know, my son wants to come home and he wants to bring his boyfriend with him for Christmas. And I told him, no, he can't. And he began this bit about his son was gay and he was not going to allow his, his son to bring his partner home because he didn't accept or believe whatever his attitude was. It wasn't okay with him. And in that group of older men in Texas playing golf, it would have been a time to say, well, you know, kind of scuffle around and continue and not say anything. And I was shocked that my father turned to him and said, are you crazy? He, he wasn't that gentle. <laughs> he wasn't harsh, but he said, that's your only son. Why would you turn him away if he loves someone? This was unexpected and very powerful. It was a way he decided to come forward where he risked something. And the other fellow didn't exactly know what to say, but he, he hung in there, he didn't go away. He didn't fight back and their relationship continued. Unfortunately, a few years later, his, his son actually died from AIDS and it was a sad, 
sad story. And I think that he was inclusive. It doesn't always work that way, but to, I was so proud of my father for coming forward, did not hold back. One of the other lines or feelings, uh, beliefs, energies that comes up in us in all of this is some version of I'm too vulnerable. I'll never survive this. But there are some things to remember about that position. First is to remember that you're always vulnerable. The illusion that you're not vulnerable is just that, a delusion. And so is everyone else. We're all vulnerable. And our life turns on how we dance with our vulnerability. But the reality of vulnerability doesn't change. That's the, that's the ground of things. It's called impermanence. Everything is changing, shifting, moving, flowing all the time. It's called interdependence. We rely on each other and everything is responding to everything else and they're, they're, you're not in control. This is life. This, and this is where we meet what the Buddha set forward as the first proposition in his understanding of practice where he said, life is characterized by dukkha. Because of this life, because of this vulnerability, because of this ever-changing contingent flow, we do experience pain, dissatisfaction, anguish, many things. But in turning toward that reality is liberation. Turning away from it is actual unnecessary suffering. You're always vulnerable. So is everyone else. And our lives together turn on how we navigate and dance with our vulnerability. Secondly, when we say, I'm too vulnerable, I can't survive this. It's also true that you won't survive this ultimately. And no one else will either. Now, this is a larger, more existential way of looking at it. Everything ends. All relationships are terminal by definition. And this is not a mistake or some cruel joke unless you believe it to be so. We can take these realities grasp at what we want to cling to, push away what we're afraid of, ignore, and then construct a way of viewing things so that it seems to be a mistake or a cruel joke because we believe life should be otherwise. But it isn't. We're always vulnerable. You won't survive all of this, ultimately, in the big picture, it may feel like you don't survive certain moments. And that brings us to the third piece is that shame and humiliation are terrible to bear. That's true. And this is not what is being prescribed by our practice orientation. In fact, these forms of anguish, uh, shame and humiliation are a form of, of cutting. Remember our cat. Because shame is a break 
a turning away, a break in connection. If someone is caring, uh, connected, intimate, somehow in relationship, if that is broken, a turn away, a rejection, even without it being spoken, that loss and that feeling there's something wrong with me, not that I did something wrong, something wrong with me as a human, as a person of value, creates a kind of a, a shame and a humiliation. This is why turning toward each moment together and the shared embodied immediacy of the moment is so powerful. It's the edge of our deepest longing, as I've said before, for love and connection and the terror of loss and shame. It is a difficult edge, that's true. I'll be too vulnerable, I can't survive this. But remember, we're always vulnerable and our life turns on how we navigate it. We won't ultimately survive and that's not just some bad news. It's the, the ground that brings us to life. And shame and humiliation are difficult to bear. So it's best to turn back toward each other with care. And it's a good idea to realize these truths and practice with them because they'll come to you faster and more powerfully than you think. And the longer you live, the more you'll understand this reality. And this isn't some horrible thing. This is the entry point to joy, to incredible beauty, to awe, to profound humility and overwhelming gratitude, not despair. To understand that everything changes and we're dependent on everyone else is a sense of incredible beauty and it's a source of love. The realization that we won't ultimately survive means every evanescent moment is full of awe and we can feel humility in the face of that and gratitude for every single moment. And that shame and humiliation is terrible to bear and they were all on the edge of that because we make ourselves vulnerable in loving relationships and so feeling the gratitude of care when it's there. This is the direction practice turns, is not to despair, but to embodied immediacy, to be here in this body now with others, to the relational engagement where we turn toward instead of holding back and the intimacy that's the result. And a caveat is we do wanna be able to say no and to set boundaries when they're appropriate. When I say don't hold back, I'm not saying just continue forward no matter what. Don't hold back by holding appropriate boundaries. Bodhisattvas have boundaries. There are times when the appropriate response is to step away or to say no. And also another piece of that is to accept that your best response will always be partial, always be flawed. Your best response. So, rather than trying to get it right and worried about being wrong, fearing the humiliation, the shakiness and the vulnerability, be wholehearted. Be 100% whoever and whatever you are at that time. And if you feel like, gosh, I'm only like 20% here, well then be 100% that 20%, but don't hold back. The path that we call 
is spiritual, is not an individual personal path. The energy, energy of our life, our life that animates everything from which we're born and to which we'll return, this ongoing flow of contingent, ever-changing reality is aliveness itself. And the wisdom and compassion and whatever intelligence and care we seek through practice is a universal and shared source which is already flowing through all of us as all of us, as all of this. And this unlimited source is always and already available. And our practice is to awaken to this fact. We are being fully lived. And this is the ground of our shared being. But this energy rarely moves through our bodies, minds, and hearts without some um, distortion. Our fears set up patterns of contraction and separation, cutting. Our craving and desires cause us to be more self-centered and narrow than we would be otherwise. And clinging to our beliefs shape our world and our assumptions about ourselves and other people. We see what we believe. And the good news is that we can awaken to all of this and become a more broad and open channel for life energy to flow with ease if we don't hold back. So now you have a chance to not hold back, to raise your hand if some of these things have invited you uh, to offer something to our group and, uh, or to ask a question or to touch on some bit of vulnerability that would be useful for us to meet. Hi, Gail. Hi, Flint. Oh gosh, you look like the same color as the sunset yesterday. <laughs> Golden. Your yes. camera, sorry. It's uh, so good. It's so good to see you and talk. It's to wonderful you. to see you. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to express some appreciation to you um, uh, with these talks, this, these inquiries. Mm. I've been listening every week, but I haven't raised my oh, hand. Uh -huh. Good, good. Well, you've been very steady for so, so long. Yes, yes. And um, I'm in California now. So okay. um, last week you talked about a vowing and about Ho'oponopono. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted to say that I began to use it. Um, I'd heard about it before, I'd read about it before, but something in the way that you brought it forward 
resonated immediately with me. I'm, I'm here in California with my husband and my son, um, who is, I'll just by way of explanation, is from another marriage and he's black. Mm-hmm. And um, as you know, sometimes things, you know, there's a little con- conflicted energy going on between the two of them or between the three of us. Sure. And it's a family. Um, it's a family. And we're all, you know, together. So I, I began to use the whole Ho'oponopono um, last week. Um, it started with some neg- negativity I was experiencing from my partner. And I began become aware of, you know, what it was bringing up in me was it was a contraction, a suffering, and I want to fix it. Mm-hmm. And instead, I silently began to do the whole Pono chant and nothing changed, nothing changed on the outside, but the energy shifted in my being in a way that just totally. um, So it softened the contraction. It softened it and I felt, began to feel peaceful. And I also did not feel any um, need to correct anything. So I was just quiet. What a relief. (laughs) Relief, yes. And the, you know, the complaining and the negativity from my partner continued and then it slowed down and then it totally dissipated. And I've had this happen again between the two of them when they were arguing just Mm -hmm. yesterday. And I guess I want to talk about the mystery of this because um, when I applied it yesterday, when my son and my husband were having a conflict, um, and I felt I wanted to get in between them. But I just started doing this. And again, I had some place to go. So I just left it and, and went to go do my errand. And during my entire errand, I just was doing Ho'oponopono because of the feelings inside my system. Mm-hmm. And again, everything relaxed. And when I came home, both my husband and my son had completely dropped their argument and told me separately that they weren't upset about anything anymore. (laughs) And, um, some days are good days, you know? (laughs) So I don't know how this works exactly. I I have a sense of it, Mm -hmm. but this forgiveness is, is very powerful because it's not forgiving them. It's forgiving me. And in some way, shape or form in doing that, the energy shifts throughout the entire relationship mm-hmm. little pod that I'm in. Um, it's, it's hard to know. It is a mystery. And I don't pretend to, to know. Uh, I think the, certainly the uh, Hawaiian culture has ideas about that, and it's, it is more esoteric and mysterious. But even from a super practical point of view, if you think about uh, in, uh, refraining from what doing you, you would normally do and softening your own heart, you're not getting in between, but instead opening the container and not throwing any fuel on the fire. You're not making it worse. Exactly, exactly. And not feeling that I need to do something, so. Which makes um, it worse, usually, that's my point. (laughs) Yeah, and and so this coming forward that you're talking about today, in a sense, I can see that the whole Ponopono was, um, in a way I was coming forward I wasn't afraid of what I was feeling, right? Well, and actually, I could to bring up another point. What is coming forward? 
we can come forward from a part of ourselves, which is reactive, or we can bring our Buddha forward, Buddha nature forward. And um, I think he right. froze there just for a moment. Bring our Buddha nature forward. Like, what is it that's coming forward? Absolutely. And what I noticed is Peg mentioned this spaciousness to remind ourselves that we are this, you mm -hmm. know, part of, we are this vastness. And when I did these practices and felt peace, it was this vastness that came forward, actually. It sort of has its own w wisdom and um, I trust in it. And it may, yeah. it may appear like I make some move, but in these two instances, mm -hmm. it appeared as just relaxing, yeah. you know. Presence. Well, that's why our first chant, when we first end, the first word is vast. <laughs> that's, where we, that's where we enter. Yes, yes. And, you know, as far as, um, just one more thing, as far as the racial um, mm -hmm. conflicts, you know, and the protests that have been happening, um, I just wanted to share, and you know this, that I lived for um, 15 years in a black neighborhood. And from the time in I was Los 10, Angeles, right? Los Angeles, yeah. And I was married to a black man at the time. And um, from the time I was 10, I was a minority, basically, in my neighborhoods. And what I came to understand, which has really helped me, is that everyone, everyone at heart has the same, wants to be happy, wants to be safe, wants to be loved, cares about their family, and it doesn't matter what the outside is. And from there, you can relate. I can relate to that. I did relate from, to that. And pretty soon, um, there are cultural differences, but those aren't the predominant thing, you know, that you notice if you're in a situation like I was. And um, also the other thing is in the black community, um, I was, number one, I was accepted and cared about. And sometimes I had bad experiences, just normal for any, any place. Um, but the thing I noticed is that they were more concerned about what was going on with white people on a daily basis than I ever ha had thought about what was going on with black people. They have a hypervigilance in these neighborhoods because it's been, um, it's been their experience that you have to be vigilant, right? And that's the thing that breaks my heart. So continue your practice for the whole community. Exactly. I, what is it? It's, it's, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. Gratitude. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One thing I just thought of as Gail's image uh, just disappeared is the um, the thought that I'm glad that her son's black body is still intact. Olivia, I think you're muted. There you go. All right. Hello. Can you see me? 
I can, I can. Where are you coming from to us? I live in Albuquerque. Ah, great. Um, when, you know, the, the, every, your whole talk was highly, you know, I, I was impacted. Mm -hmm. I uh, but at a certain point, I just got this image and I remember where I have trouble and, but it's, it's more like it, it's um, painful to hear white people be so sympathetic. Um, really, because um, living in your lifestyle, your whole mentality is that of vulnerability when you're a minority. Yes, absolutely. Um, no band-aid. No. Um, and um, so it's like it's like the empathy or the you know the whole movement and it just keeps it palpable. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I I've been very fortunate. I grew up in a small uh, farming town. Mm -hmm. large family, large Catholic family, but pretty sheltered. And I think that my rural initial years saved some of me because uh -huh. if I had been born in an urban setting in poverty and always fat, mm -hmm. um, for one, I probably might've had my father longer. My father lived to be 64, which is pretty long. My mother did live to be 88, but um, so I, I, what? When you were talking about stages, I just thought the first thing that popped was that it's so hard to have somebody who was so resistant. They will do whatever it takes, you know, to not wear a mask, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and and then it, so the it, the thing that came to me was somebody is stuck in one of these stages. Well, then I realized that I also am stuck. Yes. I'm stuck. Yes. To, uh, I don't function every minute in it, but I do know that I, that I know it's there. Mm -hmm. And to to pull myself out of there, I have a few things that I remember. Mm -hmm. One one of the things that I remember is. Uh, it, this is a, a, not out of Buddhism, but it kind of is. Um, that uh, if I visualize that in reality, um, the entire human race is, uh, we're all divided in oppression groups. All of us. including it was really interesting to really look at owning class oppression mm -hmm. including that yeah uh, so no. uh, so that the one thing that i can remember that can pull me out of this is that if i agree in in some fashion or another to continue feeling bad at some level about myself i'm also agreeing with the 
encompassing universal oppressions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just because I belong to one of them does not mean that to some extent mine hurts so bad that I'll do that one and I'll do that kind of oppression and I'll do that kind of oppression because we all do it. Mm -hmm. I do it myself. I have a bunch of adultism, for example. Yeah. You'd start yeah. there, start at home. Yeah. So, um, I'm not sure where I was going with it, but that to say this, what I just said, to say any of this, it's taken, you know, I'm 77 now. I've probably had a voice the last 20 years or so, but at different levels than I probably have a voice. But it took that long. Mm -hmm. It, it uh, feeling that vulnerable and still coming forward. Tell you this, and I will shake for several hours after I did this online. Yeah, and this is being recorded. Somebody's going to see it. Yeah. So, um, so having your voice is the most important thing at the moment to say these things and be heard. It, it is, but you see, it's okay to say them, Clint. Uh, but that's my point, you're right. Please come forward. Yeah, but 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 the response cannot be. I just feel really bad. I'm going to march empty-headed, or or I'm going to protest empty-headed. Uh, no. no, no, no. Really, really look at it. Yeah. You want to really talk to your neighbor? And keep looking. Keep looking. Keep looking. Uh, so. My lifestyle to live on, I have good people around me, white people. I don't live in an upper middle class neighborhood or anything. I just own a house, luckily mm -hmm. for me. Better house than my father ever had, than my mother ever had. They had other wealth that I don't have, <laughs> really. But, uh, but my lifestyle has to be one of vulnerability. I am the minority here, and it's up to me yes. to open up, to make the mistakes, to mm -hmm. go along their little Christmas parties or whatever. And I, so what happens is we, uh, many of us, uh, I'm one of these. I have closed all of my culture, so I don't live in my culture. Mm. I live in this reactive mode, watching, like she was saying, watching white people. Well, I, I don't necessarily watch that vigilantly, but I uh, conform to the waves of what is going to be considered okay. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know what I would do today if I was going to be absorbed in my culture. I actually don't know where to start, my own culture. Yeah. So um, to say all of this is in the vulnerable stage. Mm -hmm. Now, please tell me. You had three stages. Tell me again, because I forgot them. Well, they weren't exactly stages, but what I spoke about was... I visualized it. Yeah, that we're always vulnerable, that ultimately we will die, we won't survive, yeah. and that shame and humiliation aren't the direction we're going, but we do have to work with that. Yeah, but then yeah. we live in shame, and you know, to some extent you have shame. Yeah, I did something in a Buddhist group the other day about uh, 
I've gotten a tan from being in my yard. But when I talk to my white neighbor, she can talk about her so much sun. But if I say anything, everything's quiet. And you know what the message is? We know you're already brown anyway, you know, so. And I'm luckily, I'm not one of the brownest, you know, yeah. I have some of my culture. So, um, so I, I, I shouldn't even compare that in the first place, but, but I'm just saying, okay, enough. Thank you for speaking. The important thing is that you can be heard and that you can speak and you can come forward and I honor that. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad that you're with us. Okay. It's also really good to hear an, um, a new voice we haven't heard before. Ah, and now to Northern England. <laughs> to an old voice. A friendly voice, one I love. Yeah. I was just feeling, um, feeling that vulnerability and, and feeling very touched by um, by that sense of having to live a life of vulnerability and um, struggling a little not to be comparative about levels of vulnerability because I know mm -hmm. as a human I'm vulnerable but it, it's um, I don't attract certain kinds of things that I know other people do so um, sure. just kind of sitting with that a little mm -hmm. yeah. there's um, heartbreak in that yeah yeah, just trying to find some way of um, how do we honor, how do we honor what we, our own vulnerability and not, not, and know that it's different for different people and there are different vulnerabilities. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I was, I was, so I, I'm kind of not quite where I was when I pressed the little hand because <laughs> I'm feeling really caught by that. But your um, the sensitivity to understanding that yes, there's a a general existential sense of vulnerability we all have, but there are specific enacted cultural vulnerabilities we don't all share. Actually, absolutely. Yeah, they're quite different. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's yeah. more complicated than that because gender makes a difference, age makes a difference. Yeah, the, the young people who are privileged or different than the ones that Josh taught. The one, you know, they have a different vulnerability. The, um, I'm in your lovely home, you know, and, uh, but all we have to do is walk a few blocks. Yeah. And you see a different kind of vulnerability that we just don't have to bear. And yet yeah. you have to witness. Yeah. And so uh, these kind of things. I get on a train in London in the midst of all of that and then end up in Preston at the station and get off and it's like, oh, it's different here. Mm. Not bad. No. Yeah, but it's different. And yeah. I'm not exactly sure which vulnerability I would choose, you know. <laughs> yeah. The kind of a vulnerability in the beautiful big city too that's like, ah. Yeah. On and on and on. But it, it feels like the most um, 
the most valuable thing I can sit with in some ways is, is that we, we share vulnerability, even if we don't share the same vulnerabilities. Yes. And that was, I'm glad you said that. That was my, my point is that we do share that even if it's not the same, it isn't the same and there are different ways. And that's there. So I, I, um, my vulnerability was also about wanting to share something that I'd written with you. Um, oh, good. Please. As I, as I do. Yeah, as you do. So um, I wrote this a while ago. I don't want to wonder anymore if my love is welcome. I don't want to wonder if any longer if my love is received. I don't want to let the vulnerability of loving be the barrier that prevents me from the deepest intimacy that unbidden, unconstrained loving opens us to. There is always the fear of not enoughness or of too muchness, of not being who or how someone wants me to be. The barriers of fear can cool a heart. Shame can shrivel a tender heart, slow the blood, not quicken it. But now I want a warm and tender heart that beats and carries me forward fully into life and that life will turn towards me without holding anything back. It couldn't be more appropriate. It's so beautiful and to be reminded of it. Would you send it to me again? Because uh, it's, it's so apropos to the moment and so beautiful to hear it in your voice too. And I think it was because of what you were talking about, that sense of the turning towards just always carries this, you know, beating heart, sweaty palm. Oh my God, I'll be too much. Thin minds is, is very rarely not enough. It's usually too much. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's something about the aliveness of, of a quickened heart. Mm -hmm. So, Thank you for your teaching. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> and, and the two of you as well. Yeah, Thank you. <laughs> we were hoping to have Jasper, but he left just before we met. <laughs> and for those of you that don't know, that's not one of their actual children, but a cat. <laughs> we have more photographs of Jasper, though. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Thank and I'll be back in touch with you. I'll just say, since we're here at the end of our time, that it looks like we've maybe worked out a situation to go ahead and do a completion of your head student time online. Oh, perfect. I was going to tune in to, um, to Joan's ceremony and, and have a sense of that. So yeah, this Sunday, please do that. You get a feel for it. Yeah, we're planning to be there. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. It looks like we have just a minute. I don't think it's, um, I couldn't do justice to uh, responding to another person. I'm sorry. We'll, hopefully have another time uh, to do that. I appreciate that these issues are complex and nuanced and fraught. And, um, but you have to not hold back and come forward. And, and so I, I do my best and I really appreciate you also doing your best to come forward in this way uh, so that we can navigate them and wrestle with them together. Uh, so we'll remind ourselves by the four practice principles, um, the very things that more beautifully and poetically uh, Trudy said in her, her poem. 
caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you once again. It's been a joy to be with you and I look forward to seeing you uh, next week. Well, thank you everyone. I'm not sure why my camera isn't working, um, but I wanted to say thank you for your generosity and attendance and for being here and for all that you offered today. Um, I also wanted to just read this statement uh, to you from our website. Alpamata's programs are freely offered so that everyone may participate regardless of their means. Everyone is welcome and supported on their spiritual path here. So please feel free to share this um, this offering of inquiry with anyone that you might know that could use it. Um, and we are of course grateful for the generosity of those who are able to contribute in support of our Sangha for these programs and our teachers. If you'd like to help support Appamata or donate directly to Flint, uh, you can do that through the Appamata website. And I will also send uh, right now in the chat, I have sent over the uh, contributions to Appamata link on their website, on the website there. Uh, it's a separate form for Flint. Um, thank you all so much and um, hope to see you next week. Bye-bye.